All right. How many of you have ever had a flaming hot Cheeto? So good. Like whose mouth is already starting to salivate a little bit? There we go. All right. It's a multi-billion dollar snack. It's one of the flagships of the Frito-Lay company. Now, how many of you, as you were munching on a hot Cheeto, asked where or how was the hot Cheeto born? Well, I'm going to tell you that story today. So about 35 years ago, I don't know how it's made. I'm not going to do that. I'll just tell you how it was born. About 35 years ago, Richard Montañez was a janitor at the California Frito-Lay processing plant. He was a first-generation Mexican immigrant. He's a fourth-grade dropout, and he couldn't read or write. And so along with his strong work ethic, he had an insatiable curiosity, and he uh, was hired as a janitor at the Frito-Lay Processing Center there in, uh, in California. So in between shifts, when in this extra time that he had, he would study the, the product line, getting to know all of the products that they offered. He would um, stay late and just kind of watch how the machines and the factory worked. He, he just wanted to know everything he could about uh, Frito-Lay in that processing um, center. And in the mid-1980s, the company was struggling a bit. And so like companies often do, they, they said, okay, how can we you know, boost company morale? And they made a video uh, with the CEO at the time, Roger Enrico. And he, you know, they made this video and they sent it out to all of the 300,000 employees. And in this video, in this campaign, he encouraged every worker to act like an owner. Now, most employees, you know, they get out of the, the conference room, they go, yeah, act like an owner, right? This is just corporate cliche. But Montañez took it to heart, and he thought to himself, well, now here's this invitation from the CEO telling me, the janitor, that I can act like an owner. He goes on to say, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I didn't need to, but I knew I was going to act like an owner. And so he uh, uh, found one of his friends who was a salesman and said, hey, can I tag along with you um, on a sales call on my next day off? And they, they happened to be going through a Latino neighborhood that day. And as they were putting the different products on the shelf, Montaña has made an observation. All of their products were plain. They had no spice. They had nothing to offer a Latino who would, who would be wanting a little bit more spice, a little more adventure. Frito-Lay didn't have a single spicy product on the shelf. Then that moment happened. His billion-dollar idea, he thought, what if we put chili on a Cheeto? <laughs> Heavens opened up. The angels smiled down, right? So one night, after he got off work, he scooped up some Cheetos off the factory line before they were dusted in whatever they call cheese there, okay? He took them home, and he made the first hot Cheeto prototype. He made a bunch of them. He, he, he got a sample focus group with his friends and his neighbors, and he said, try these. And they all loved it. And so after uh, testing it with some focus groups, he got up the courage to make the phone call that would change his life. He found the CEO's number in the company directory, and he called. So here's how that conversation went. The executive assistant answered the phone. She said, Mr. Enrico's office, who is this? He said, Richard Montañez. She said, what division are you with? He said, California. She said, you're the VP overseeing California? No, I work at the Rancho Comunga plant. Oh, so you're the VP of operations. No, I work inside the plant. Oh, you must be the plant manager. No, I'm the janitor. 
After a long, awkward minute of, of silence, the CEO picked up the phone and Montañez told him his idea, how he had studied the company's products, how he identified a, a strategic market, and how he had even made a prototype and tested it. Mr. Enrico was intrigued by the idea. He came out, flew out to California, and gave Montañez the meeting of his life so he could hear his presentation and he could taste the hot Cheeto for himself. And after the presentation, the CEO told Enrico, or told Montañez to put away the mop, you're coming with us. And after that, Montañez became the VP of multicultural sales for the company. And today, the Flaming Hot Cheeto is one of Frito-Lay's hottest selling commodities. See, 30 years ago, Montañez had an invitation on the table. Some wrote it off as corporate cliche, nothing more than just a video to boost morale. But Montañez took that invitation seriously, and that day he made a decision that would forever change his life. Today, as we finish our series in the first half of Proverbs, we are coming to a point of decision. It's time for us to decide. And on one hand, we're going to look through this invitation from Lady Wisdom. She's offering us to come dine at her table, to eat from this choice meal that she's prepared for us. And there's an invitation to life. And on the other hand, there's this invitation to dine with Lady Folly. And every one of us today will have to make a decision Whose house will we go to? As we look at Proverbs 9, it's on page 533 in the Bibles and the seats, and the seats around you. We're going to see three things. First, we're going to see wisdom's table. Lady Wisdom has a table before us, a feast of the finest fare with an invitation to a life of blessing. Second, we're going to see Folly's trap. Folly sets a trap that's disguised as a table, and what looks like a, a meal of nourishment is really a meal that leads to death. And finally, we'll consider decisions threshold. The threshold is that part of the door that marks the entryway into a home. When you cross a threshold, you've made a decision, and that threshold is that deciding line of whose house that you'll go into. And so today we will ask, how will we decide whose invitation we're going to take? Will we go into the house of wisdom or will we go into the house of folly and what guides that decision? So today we'll see wisdom's table, folly's trap, and decision's threshold. Look with me at verse one as we look at wisdom's table. Verse one says this, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts and she has mixed her wine and she has also set her table. If you've been with us over the, the summer, we've been walking through the first half of Proverbs. We're coming to the last in that sermon series. And we've seen over and over wisdom be personified as, a, as this dignified woman who calls to any who will listen, who will learn her way so that they too can live a, a life of wisdom. Now today, at the end of this first half, there's this invitation to this meal at her house. You almost get this impression of if you've been walking along the way of wisdom. It's this culminating, this celebratory meal. And so you get out of your Uber and you start walking up to her house and you notice that it's this magnificent mansion. There's these seven pillars that are beautifully crafted. The writer of Proverbs tells us that, that wisdom has built this house. Now in the Hebrew worldview, the number seven is a, a significant number. 
It, it, it indicates um, perfection and completeness. And so as, as we walk up to her house and we, we're seeing this, not only we're, are we impressed by um, the, the beauty and the architecture of the house, but we see those seven pillars and it's meant to, to, to convey this idea of wholeness, that, that there's a completeness, that there's something fulfilling happening going on as we would enter into her house. It's representative of this life of blessing. And as we walk into the door, you can imagine that there's this meal that has been prepared. And as you are entering into a home where good cooking has happened, what happens? First, you start to, before you even see the feast, you smell the feast, right? You can smell the meat being roasted on the open fire. You can smell the fresh bread that's, that's coming out of the oven and, and, and being put to the side so it can rest before cutting. You hear the wine uh, being poured and you hear the taste being set as the final preparations are being made. Even thinking about talking about food right now, our mouths begin to water in anticipation for this feast. One of the things I love about a good meal like that is when you've, when you've experienced something like that, even the, the, the reminiscent smells of it can just bring you right back there because a meal is more than just an idea, it's an experience. And to prepare for this meal, Lady Wisdom has slaughtered the animals herself. She has mixed the wine. Mixing wine didn't mean that it was watered down. It meant meant that um, honey and spices were added to it to make the wine even better. All of this is pointing to the fact this is no ordinary meal. This is not like Taco Tuesday at my house. This is a feast of celebration. See, in the ancient world, most meals didn't include meat and well-mixed wine. That was a luxury that was reserved for guests and celebrations, even these holy meals. And that's what we're being invited into. Look with me at verse three. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. As you come into this house, you quickly realize you're not alone. There's, there's these other invited guests. There's conversation going on. You can tell people are enjoying each other's company. Lady Wisdom has sent out invitations broad and far to the simple one and to the one who lacks sense. Now let's unpack what that means. Who are the, who are the simple here? What does she mean by that? Well, the Hebrew word for simple here refers to someone who would be um, inexperienced, someone who's needing instruction. They're malleable, which means that they can be shaped, they can be molded by whoever gets their attention. This word would often be used to refer to uh, young people, right? Because they're at this, this stage of their life where they need to be molded and taught and trained. They're almost used interchangeably. You know, I think about um, like raw materials. I, I like to uh, do woodworking. So this would be like that pile of lumber. It's, it's in a simple form and it, there's so much potential there to take it and to mold it and to craft it and to join it together to be something useful and beautiful. It doesn't have to mean um, young in age either. This, this could be someone who's, who's in this, this state of um, immaturity. There's raw material here that can be shaped and turned into something. When I think of this idea of simplicity, the simple, I think of great potential. There's this, this, this life that's hanging in the balance of, of how will it be molded and shaped. This great potential for great good or in the wrong hands even potential and frightening harm. It's this life 
hanging in the balance. And wisdom calls out. Folly calls out. They're both competing for this person. Both wisdom and folly want to shape this person. They want their attention. They want their affection. They, they want their allegiance so that they can shape them towards their own purposes. His wisdom is calling out to the simple one and saying, hey, do you want to know how life really works? Are you interested in learning from me, being shaped by me, being trained by me, being disciplined by me? If so, then come, have dinner with me. The table is set and it's spread with rich food and good drink that will satisfy your hunger and thirst. This table metaphor points to a deeper reality that when we get and gain wisdom, it will nourish and sustain your life. Think about the table that's been set before us over the weeks that we've gone so far in the first nine chapters of, he, of, uh, of uh, Proverbs. In chapter one, we saw that the fear of the Lord is the place to begin on the journey of wisdom, where we make God our highest priority, our deepest love, and our foundational trust. We saw in chapter one that we tend to become like the people we spend the most time with, and we saw this idea that our community influences how we believe and behave. We also saw there's, there's an importance of heeding wisdom's call and not neglecting it until tomorrow. In chapter two, we saw that when we walk on the way of wisdom, it leads to a life of blessing, that there's an inheritance awaiting all who would journey and be faithful to the end. In chapter three, we saw the importance of humility and the value of being corrected to stay on the straight path. In chapter four, we saw that wisdom isn't hard to find. It's just hard to pursue, that wisdom's call is out there and available for all of us. And we got down to the, to the detail of our desires and that if we truly want a life marked by wisdom, we, it's, it, it has to be more than just this cerebral belief that it's right. We have to actually want it. In chapters five, six, and seven, we saw the wisdom of God's design for human sexuality and that flourishing happens when we live by that design. In chapter six, we saw that a life of wisdom is responsible, it's reliable, and it's relational. And if we'll hang on to those things and become people who are responsible, reliable, and relational, we'll have a life of wisdom. And last week in chapter eight, we saw the value of our attention, that who has our attention has access to the deepest parts of who we are. They have access to our time and our talent and our treasures. That there's this need for us to aim our desires, uh, to aim our attention by what we desire, that it can be sustained by diligence and it will be fueled by our delight. If you are tracking with me, you've seen wisdom has set a good table for us. We're, in, we're invited not to merely dabble and nibble, but we are invited to feast on all that God has set before us. And if we will, not only will our individual lives be enriched by this meal, the picture here is painted uh, 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 one of community, that this banquet is filled with invited guests. This isn't a candlelit dinner for two. This is a communal meal, a family meal, where we'll be encouraged and built up by those around us. The company of this meal will actually bring relational satisfaction. So much, in fact, that everything about the way this picture is painted is meant to convey satisfaction, wholeness, and life. Doesn't everybody want those things? 
And the writer of Proverbs has called us into a meal where we will have satisfaction, wholeness, and life. Those are amazing things. So you would think, what's the cost of admission? There must be a hefty price tag to enter into a meal like that. And all she says is this, leave behind your simple ways. Walk in the way of insight. There's no asking for your wallet. There's no swiping of a credit card. It's simply this, do you want it? Are you willing to leave behind those simple ways, which means we have to come with humility and teachability? You have to be willing to say some of, these hard, some of the hardest words, I don't know. Sometimes those are the hardest words to say, to admit, I am lacking. I don't know what is right or wrong. I don't know what is wise. You have to be willing to receive this instruction and to learn a new way of living. You have to be willing to change. I mean, change can be so difficult. We resist change. We have to be willing to change our beliefs, our values, our behaviors, our influences. Everything is on the table to be changed. We have to be willing to redefine what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. We have to be willing to unlearn some old habits so that we can relearn some healthy ones. We have to be willing to turn away from our old ways and old paths of living and turn to a new way of living. And if we're willing to do that, if we're willing to leave behind our simple ways, then we have a seat at the table. We have to come to this place where we realize our souls will not be satisfied until they're satisfied in God. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 63, verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's describing what it's like to delight in the Lord, to be satisfied like a good meal. And that's the offer that's on the table, an invitation into a relationship with God where our souls can be satisfied, where we can express our delight and gratitude with praise and joy. Wisdom has set a table before us. Now look at verse 13 to see the trap that folly has set. Verse 13, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to all who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So not only does wisdom offer an invitation, we see that folly has extended an invitation to her house as well. Solomon begins by saying that folly is loud. That word in Hebrew means tumultuous, restless, and noisy. It's not merely just loud in volume. It it, it stirs up restlessness. Where wisdom calls from the the high places to be heard, uh, the, the Bible says she even raises her voice to get above the fray, but she's never noisy. Wisdom is never tumultuous. Wisdom never stirs you into a restlessness. And our ears intuitively know the difference between a voice that's being raised to offer clarity and urgency and that noisy voice that is stirring up restlessness and distraction. See, folly is loud and noisy. Her aim is to distract you from the path so that she can then begin her seduction. You see, it goes from this voice of distraction, this loud voice, and then she brings it down to a whisper to draw us in. And she sits idly at her door, calling to all who are passing by. 
Notice how the text says that she calls to those in particular who are going straight on their way. Perhaps they're even headed to wisdom's feast. See, folly loves to derail those who are striving for the straight and more narrow path to wisdom's house. And if you noticed, her call is identical to wisdom's. Did you see that? Both wisdom and folly say, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Both of them make their speeches from the high places. Both of them offer food and make promises. But friends, these invitations are not identical. Lady Wisdom is presented as this welcoming hostess who's built this beautiful home and a well-prepared feast. She sent out invitations to the simple to come and dine. But Wisdom Folly in their hand, if you noticed her, she's inactive. She's sitting, sitting idly by the door. She's made no preparations. She's loud and noisy and ignorant. She uses her to suck, uh, seduction to lure the guests in. Instead of preparing a feast at cost to herself, She's stolen other people's bread and water at cost to other people's house. And not only is it a meager meal, bread and water, she delights in the fact that it's stolen. Raymond Van Leeuwen in his book on Proverbs wrote this, folly and sin are always parasitic of the good that God by wisdom has made. Folly takes the goods and destroys their goodness by ripping them from their proper place. Folly has not built her house. She has stolen it. See, Folly is a smuggler, a thief, and a liar. And she stands against everything that God stands for. On one hand, Lady Wisdom offers an abundant feast representative of everything that you and I can want in life. Meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, hope, joy, peace, purpose. Folly seduces by the attraction of what's forbidden and what's done in secret. So she lures her victims into a trap by telling them half lies or uh, lies and half truths. She'll do whatever she can to try to convince you that sin will give you pleasure and that you can wiggle out of all the consequences or even better yet, you'll be able to avoid them all together. Folly offers pro false promises and disappointments, a life of emptiness and distraction, but it's worse than that. Look with me at verse 18. Here's the end of Folly's meal. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, we see that what looks like a table is really a trap. See, tables are meant to bring people together, to dine, to be encouraged, to be filled and satisfied, but this isn't a table to trap. It's a table of death. All who enter their home, her home are dead, and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. In the Hebrew kind of worldview, Sheol was the place of the dead. It, it, it was the grave. It's the, the depths where death squeezes out the very last drops of life. Not only do those who dine with folly end up dead, they end up missing out on life, which another way to think about it is to die twice. Not only do you miss out on all the richness of living, but you also find yourself dead. It's doubly tragic when someone dies before they actually die. When they miss out on experiencing life that God offers us, a life of significance and purpose, a life of meaningful relationships and joy. All of us have either had friends 
or family, or we see it on the news of this. Uh, uh, we, we, we even um, grieve the loss of a life where someone has just not, have made, have made foolish decisions and really kind of wasted the potential of their life. It's a waste to us. And, it, and the reason we grieve that is because it's like they're dying twice. Pastor Tim Keller writes it like this. To miss out on life, then, is to enter the realm of death before your physical on life physical life on earth is ended. To live a life cut off from God with ever-increasing spiritual blindness, brittleness, and hardness is to become a spiritual corpse. Folly's guests reside deep in the realm of the dead. See, Folly distracts her guests with her noisy, her, uh, uh, distracts her guests with noisy invitations, entices them by her seductive whispers and these promises of delight. But in the end, all who dine at her table are dead. This last lesson of Solomon to his sons brings everything he has said to this moment of decision. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are like these wisdom lectures. And if you start getting into um, 10 through 31, they become those axiomatic one-liners, right? These are these lessons on wisdom. And he's telling his sons, it's time to choose between the house of wisdom and the brothel of folly, the way of wisdom or the path of the fool, the house of life or the house of death. And at every point along the way, the reality of this decision has dotted every page and paragraph. And here, the contrast between these two choices is made abundantly clear. It really is, at the end of the day, a matter of life and death. You want to know one of the great ironies about the book of Proverbs and the tragedy of Solomon's life? Is that he didn't listen very well to his own wisdom. A number of you have pointed that out to me over the course of the weeks, and I've been kind of saving it for the end here. If you read the biography of Solomon in 1 Kings, you see at the end of his life, his delight was not in the Lord. His delight became in women. He took many wives, many concubines, most of them from foreign uh, countries. And the Bible says that Solomon clung to these and love. Instead of embracing and holding on to the Lord, he departed from him and clung to these foreign women. And many of the women that he delighted in worshiped in other gods. And before long, he too started to worship false gods. Look what it says in uh, chapter 11, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. See, even Solomon, one of the wisest men to ever live, was distracted and seduced by folly. So how will we decide which threshold we will cross? See, at first, the decision seems like a no-brainer, right? Life or death? Oh, let me think about that one for a minute. Of course, we'll choose the better table. When you, when you read the two invitations, they don't even compare. You might be thinking, of course, we'll choose wisdom. Of course, we'll choose life. But friends, our track record says something different about us, doesn't it? In the day-to-day -day reality of life, we often choose folly over wisdom, death over life. So how can we make sure to choose the right decision? Well, verses 7 through 12 give us the key. Look with me in verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. 
Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man. He will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Verse 11, for by me your days will be multiplied and your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Now, in between these two invitations, Wisdom's Table and Folly's Trap, we have this middle section. And you might have noticed when we got to Folly's Trap that I skipped uh, this whole section there in the middle. When you read it, at first it seems kind of out of place because it kind of breaks up those two invitations. And at first you might go, how is this middle section related to these two invitations? This is Hebrew wisdom poetry. This is not linear advice from a counselor like we might give. It's, it's poetry. So when you read poetry, usually uh, the, the meaning isn't immediately clear the first time you read it. So what you have to do is you have to read it a few times and kind of ask yourself some good questions like why would Solomon put this thing here in the middle? And when you do that, when you ask some good questions, you find out that this middle section is this threshold of decision. It provides the key to unlocking our hearts and ultimately helps us decide which invitation we're gonna take. So let's unpack it together. First, Solomon lays out these two types of people. You have on one hand, the scoffer, and on the other hand, you have the wise man, okay? In the book of Proverbs, the scoffer is this person who is full of themselves. They're prideful, they're arrogant, they're even contemptuous of other people. The scoffer submits to no authority but his own and despises correction of any kind. It says right here, if you try to correct and instruct a scoffer, you better watch out because you could incur injury. See, in their own insecurity, in their own defensiveness, they're going to insult you. They might dishonor you. They could even physically lash out at you. Anybody ever experienced the, 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 the receiving end of trying to instruct a scoffer? It's awful, right? The scoffer in the end will be responsible for his own life of misery. They get their just desserts. Now the wise man, on the other hand, in Proverbs, has come to see humility and teachability as the pathways to wisdom. The wise person welcomes correction and instruction so that he can grow in in, in wisdom. The wise person understands that when it comes to wisdom, you never fully arrive, right? There's always more to learn. Even as you're growing and increasing in wisdom, even as other people might come to you for your your wisdom, the wise person understands that there's always room to grow. And in the end, the wise person experiences abundant life, both in quantity and in quality. The way of wisdom is not paved with quick fixes, infomercials, and panaceas. The wise person knows that it's the hard, long road of training and disciplining, teaching our head, our hearts, and our hands how to live. And Solomon tells us that the wise person truly understands this principle, that it all begins with the fear of the Lord. Now, you might have noticed as we were reading, I left out verse 10 on purpose because it is the key difference between becoming a scoffer and the wise person. Let's read it. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 
Solomon, he finishes this last wisdom lesson. If you, be, if you remember, in chapter one, he began his wisdom uh, lecture series on the fear of the Lord. This is that phrase that comes up over and over throughout the Bible. It's a phrase that uh, is just packed with meaning. And for us, it is the key. It is the threshold of decision where it comes uh, based on how we answer that question. That will determine whose invitation, wisdom or folly, that we will take over this series, we've tried to uh, uh, come up with some practical definitions of what it means to fear the Lord. Here's how we've tried to say it. You know you fear the Lord when he is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. When those three things are in place, that's when you are really fearing the Lord. Or another way to say it is this, that God has your highest attention, affection, and allegiance which means you're, 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 you're focused in, your attention is on God. Affection, he, he, he has your heart and he has your allegiance, you're loyal to him. To fear the Lord means that you've come to realize that he is God and you are not, that his ways are above your ways, that he gets to define what is truth, what is goodness and what is beauty. It's this posture, it's a, it's a humility in your heart that recognizes that God is central to the universe and I am not. The world does not revolve around me. It actually revolves around him. It's to understand that God is perfectly just and as a just judge has the right and the authority to judge and in fact condemn us in our sins. And if he did that, would be right to do so. That none of us stand righteous before a holy God. It also understands that in his unbelievable mercy, grace, and forgiveness, he extends relationship to us. And when we think about those two things together, it humbles us in gratitude. We're in awe of the fact that he would be so forgiving and loving. And there's a reverence to know that he is holy. The fear of the Lord should produce in us a desire to want to know him, to want to follow him, and want to love him. Fear of the Lord is not a terrorizing fear where we run away from him. When you truly fear the Lord, you want to go where he goes. You want to be near him. When a person fears the Lord, they will orient their whole life around him. They won't take him for granted. His word becomes food to your soul. His presence is like a warming fire on a cold night. And when you rightly fear the Lord, your love for him is matured, it's deepened, so that following him is no longer this list of do's and don'ts. When you meet a, a, a young Christian, most of the time, that's kind of the beginning stages of, okay, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. I want to do the right things and avoid doing the wrong things. And that's, that's true. That remains for the rest of your life. But as someone has walked with the Lord over a lifetime, you find that that, that, that sense of do and don't is, is, is transferred out of duty into a sense of delight because you find that your desires change and your desires are like his desires. So much, in fact, that you hardly think Think about your decisions in terms of like rules and regulations. It becomes more about honoring the Lord, yet your desires have actually become his so that your submission to his will is an expression of your love for God. In short, to fear the Lord means that there is this attitude, this posture in your heart of submission and obedience, dependence and joy and respect and worship.
See, a life of wisdom, it's more than just someone who's savvy. It's more than someone who's just good at navigating money and relationships and decisions and life. And and hear me, it is all those things. The book of Proverbs talks about how to do all of those things, but it grounds all of a life of wisdom in this truth of the fear of the Lord. In fact, it's so foundational to a life of wisdom that it would go so far as to say, you can be really good at navigating life. You can be savvy. You can be the guy that everybody comes to for financial advice, for wisdom advice on all matters of life. But if the fear of the Lord is not your foundation for living, the Bible would say, you're not really wise at all. The Bible would say, you are a fool. And conversely, you can struggle with money management. You, 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 you can struggle to show up on time to appointments. You can struggle in relationships. You can struggle with making decisions. But if God is your foundation, if you fear the Lord, then biblically speaking, you are wise. That's why the fear of the Lord is this threshold to our decision on whose invitation we're going to take. Because again, on the surface, that decision seems like a no-brainer, right? You look at the table spread, you look at the, the company, you know, on one hand, you've got bread and water and zombies, like the walking dead over here. On the other hand, you've got this abundant feast with community and all these people talking and engaging and, 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 and one is like a house of life and one is a house of death. And it's like, oh, of course, I know which one I'll choose, That's because in theory, the right answer or the right choice is obvious. It's not a lack of wisdom. We've been saying this over and over. It's not that wisdom is hard to find. It's just hard to pursue. The problem is that deep down, every one of us, every one of us is born as a scoffer. See, in our pride, we want to do things our own way, and we really don't like it. When anyone, especially God, tells us how to live. That is the default position of every human heart. Theologians call this this condition, and the Bible describes this condition called original sin. What it means is we are all born with a bent towards scoffing. We are all bent towards folly. It happened in the garden when our first parents sinned and infused this sinful bent into our DNA. That's why the default posture of every human heart is pride. We're born this way. We want to do it our way. Let me throw up some Bible to help show you what I mean. Psalm 14, two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Jeremiah 17, nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2, one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Romans 3, 10, 11, and 18. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is saying, that's the problem. We do not fear God. 
These are just a few of the many passages that teach that there is something broken inside each and every one of us down at the level of the heart. Pastor Ray Ortland, who's just been so helpful to me in this sermon series, writes this. We were born complicated. We were born with a bias towards folly. We were born guilty. Theologians call it original sin, and it is real. It explains why our wills are unfree. It explains why even obvious choices can be difficult or impossible. Our hearts are corrupt down beneath the level of choice. So just knowing the right thing to do is not always enough. Friends, our hearts are corrupt at the level of choice. We don't choose the right thing or the obvious thing because we're broken. That's why this decision can often feel paralyzing. You're looking at it, it seems so obvious, but the decision will paralyze you. To make the right decision, to choose to fear the Lord and make him the object of our greatest attention, affection, and allegiance requires more than just information. Friends, it's going to require transformation, not just more information. That's not what you need. Your hearts need to be transformed. We need a transformation of our desires. And here is the beauty of the gospel. God understands human history better than we ever could. He knows that our hearts are broken and that we need a heart transplant. He knows that on our own, we would never seek after him nor desire him. And that's precisely why he came to seek after us. No one seeks after God. That's why God sought after us. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sought after us through the son and Jesus himself summed up his mission this way. Luke 5, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the right, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He is the great physician come to give us the heart transplant that we all need. And then he crystallizes it in Luke 19, 10. This is Jesus speaking. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. You did not seek after God. He came and sought after you. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save the lost, to be that great physician to those who are sick with sin. God pursues us. And so the only question that's left for us to answer is, how will you respond? Will you scoff and continue on your own way? Or will you humble yourselves before a holy God Will we see him as the greater object of our affection, satisfaction? And will we come to a place of repentance where we turn away from sin? Will we turn away from the house of folly and turn towards God to enter into the house of wisdom? One of the old hymns says it like this. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. So many people stand and hang outside the house of wisdom thinking, I've got to pretty myself up. I've got to put myself together so I'll be presentable to go in to his house and friends. That's not how it works. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Your hope of looking better, being better, feeling better is by coming into the house and letting the son of God do his work. He is calling us, inviting us to come now and receive his very best. 
because Jesus Christ is God's true wisdom. He is the one who prepared a feast, not at cost to you and me, but at cost to himself. He doesn't just slaughter a lamb on the table. He is the slaughtered lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that everyone who hungers and thirsts can come to this house of wisdom, eat and be filled and be satisfied and truly live. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good Delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ears, and come to me here that your soul may live. That invitation is on the table to you and me right now. It is the God of the universe telling sinners like you and me that not only can we act like owners, but we can dine at his table as beloved children. Will you accept that invitation and sit at his table. Let's pray.